0: Worship team, that was really special. Uh, I got one question. Was that cowbell I heard? Yes, that's cowbell. You know what we need, more cowbell. More cowbell. OK, just so we're clear, that was, uh, that was beautiful, all the drumming. Uh, that, that, was, that was wonderful. So uh, great to have you guys back here. Great for me to be back here after not feeling so well last week. But uh, we're going to continue on in our, our study of Genesis. And we started last week, uh, or two weeks ago, when we started our series with a bang. <laughs> think about it. Think about it. Let it, let it dwell. It's, it's good. It's worth it. I, I sat on that for two weeks, guys. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. So... So we talked about the Big Bang, and we talked about evolution, and we talked about creation. And we wanted to start there because those are the big questions that a lot of people have around Genesis, especially in those first four chapters. And, and what we saw was that science has put forth a couple of theories. And we, we highlight the fact that that's what they are. They are theories. It is a, an unproven hypothesis. If it was proven, it wouldn't be a theory anymore. It would be a law. But instead, it's simply that. It is a theory. And, and we saw that it's got some pretty substantial flaws. Many more flaws than what we covered. In fact, if you want, you can Google all kinds of stuff on the internet. But some of the flaws that we saw is that it simply breaks the law of nature. Or, or many laws of nature, really. <clears throat> right? This idea that, that somehow we go from disorder and chaos to create order and, and design and so forth. And and then we talked about even the fine-tuning of things, of how, how particular and how specific everything is and how important it is all coming together. But then we saw really even the application of those theories. The result is, the reality is, is that you and I, if we're nothing more than just random collisions, random mutations, then nothing matters. And there is no good. There is no evil. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no such thing as intrinsic value. We said you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, but none of that matters either. And so there's a, a nihilistic view that really is the only conclusion that would come from this random explosions. And then we said that you know both of these scientific theories, as well as intelligent design or creation theories, they have something in common, though, is that they need something greater than creation itself, something greater to be the source, as well as to direct that creation. The difference being is that intelligent design allows for such a creator. Whereas the scientific community is trying to disprove the existence of one. And so what we need to see now is looking at it from the other side of things. Right. So that was sort of our impromptu science class. And, and now what we want to do is we want to look at what is what does the scripture say about it? What does the Bible say about that? And and we're starting here really on this issue of creation, which to be honest, in my opinion, there's so many more better, more exciting things to come in our study. But we're starting here because it's a critical question. There's a lot of people whose faith has been shipwrecked, whose faith has been kind of, uh, they've lost their faith because they, they don't know what to do with the Genesis account. And they've got people they respect and scientists and so forth saying this over here that disproves the Bible and they're not sure what to do with it. And then there's other people who, who won't even begin their journey of faith because they don't have a credible answer for these issues of, of Genesis and creation. And so that's why we're starting here. And we want to even allow now the possibility that we can approach God's word and see that it actually has, has weight, has credibility when it comes to describing and, and um, explaining how creation took place. And what a gift that is. I, I'm, I've grown up in the church, and I, I am blessed with one thing above all else in my childhood, and that was this firm belief in the Holy Scriptures, this firm belief that what the Bible says is true, that there's no book in the, in the world that has been as tested and put through the wringer like the Bible, and every time it's come through with shining colors. In fact, there have been many men and women who've gone with the intent to disprove the Bible and then only coming to the end of their study and realizing it's all true. It's all true. And so that's what we want to do. We want to we want to see what does the scripture say? Now, one commentator in my, my study, he says, well, if the Bible, we have to believe the Bible no matter what, if the Bible says the world is flat, then regardless of what science says, the world is flat. And I remember reading that thinking, "Nope, that's not good <laughs> because that's, that's, that's just foolishness. That's just sort of ignoring reality. Instead, we don't have to worry about the scriptures, you know, in any way going against reality. They are describing reality. And if the if the Bible did say the world is flat and clearly it's not. Sorry, some of you to break that to you. But if you don't believe me, come talk to me later. Right. But the world's not flat. And if but if the Bible says that, then that would that would destroy the credibility of God's word. And so it's important for us not just to ignore reality, ignore what's going on, but the reality is God's word supports reality. It, it helps to understand it. So let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer then as we start to understand God's, God's view of creation. And uh, Heavenly Father, we're, we're excited about the possibility of this morning. And, and again, I don't want this to be another you know, impromptu science class or another, another information morning. I pray, Father, that life would be, be shared, that each of us would be encouraged, each of us would be, would be blessed by what you want to share with us. And I pray, Father, this will strengthen our faith, this will strengthen our resolve and our love towards you as we can see who you are and that we can trust you. In your name we pray, amen. So what we're going to call, you know, there's a larger umbrella, of what's called intelligent design or, or creation theories. And I still want to use that word theories because, quite frankly, each of these theories we're going to look at has some flaws, has some, some holes. And I can't say without with a complete absolute thing, value uh, or, or uh, conviction that one theory is, is right and the others are wrong because they're all got a little bit of fine tuning to it. So I'll leave it at that as theories. I will share with you which one I prefer. But I don't know if I would say it's completely absolute. But I want to begin with a couple disclaimers. Number one, the, the when and the how of creation is really interesting, but it's far less important than the who and the why. Right? The, the when and, and when did he do it? How old is the earth? And how did he do it? It was over time. Was it an instant? Interesting things to talk about, but not nearly as important as the who did it and why he did it. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go on. But the second thing I want to say is that there's going to be no test on the, at the pearly gates for your views on creation, right? It's not like before you enter into heaven, you know, St. Peter's going to be there and say, wait a minute, we got a little test for you, a little test on your doctrine. And depending on how you score determines the kind of place you have, right? Is it by the coast? Is it in the mountains, in the valley? Are you facing a brick wall? Is your room beside, you know, the elevator shaft? You know, those type of things, right? That's not what's happening, And that's good news, right? So we don't have to worry about about having the perfect doctrine, the perfect theology. Um, The issue is our heart. And how is our heart towards God? That's the only thing that matters, and he's the only one that can be the judge of that. Okay, those are my disclaimers. Let's dive in now. Let's look at some of the common theories. The first theory we want to look at, really, really briefly, is this idea of theistic evolution. And so basically, theistic evolution says that the whole evolution theory is correct. It's just that God is behind it. God used evolution to make that happen. And, and so that's why we don't have to worry about the Big Bang theories and, and so forth. We can quickly dismiss this one, though, because it has all the same problems that the Big Bang theories and evolution has that we looked at a couple weeks ago. In fact, it even probably has a few more things that are, that are uh, problem problematic with it. But if that were the case, if it was still random mutations over time, then you still have no value. You still no intrinsic value. There is still no th- such thing as good or bad because it would be all random. And it, God didn't say that he created you in a random way. Instead, you and I were created in the image of God. And so if theistic evolution was correct, then we would have to throw out much of the, the of Genesis and much even what some of the things that Jesus had said because scriptures does not support that idea that you and I were formed over millions of years step by step from different species. So we can quickly throw that one off the table. The next theory is what's called the gap theory. And, and the gap theory is really it's based entirely on a breathing mark or an accent called the Reba Not the singer, just so we're clear, R-E-B-I-A, which is often used as an indicate as a pause or a break, and it's going to occur between verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 1. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here was the Reba, the breathing mark, the pause. And then the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So here's what the gap theory states is that 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 breathing mark indicates that there was a gap, a period of time that we don't know exactly how long it was. But in that time, Satan and the other angels, they ruled the earth as God designed them to. But it was during this gap, during this time, that Satan decided to be God, that Satan decided to lead a rebellion. And he got one third of the angels to take his side, and they fought a war. It was a massive war, so much so that it left the earth void. It left it destroyed. Hence what, happened, what we see in verse 2. And so that would be all happening in this gap. And, and so now in verse 2 onward is really kind of God recreating creation. Right? It's, it's like the sequel now to, to creation, right? So creation, the sequel, or, or Satan's revenge. I'm not sure what title it would be, but, but nonetheless, that would be this idea now of the gap theory. And there's a couple reasons that appeals to it. Number one is it would quickly solve the issue of the apparent age of the universe. Right? We said the, the universe that scientists have measured to be about 13.8 billion years old, give or take a few months. And so that gap theory would allow us to have unlimited time. We could have 13.75 billion years in the gap, however we need to be to make it all work. So that's that's kind of appealing for some people uh, who like the gap theory. The other advantage of this theory is that it provides a time for when Satan rebelled. Because a lot of people question that. Did he rebel before the garden? Was it in the garden? At what point did he do this? And so some would say, well, it happened between 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. But there are some significant problems with this theory. Number one is that it's not until day four does God create the sun, moon, and stars and hangs them in the sky. Which means that if we're going to talk about an apparent age of the universe, all that's happening after the gap. So that doesn't actually help solve the issue of the age issue, the age question. But here's the bigger problem with it. That, that breathing mark, that Reba that was added, well, it was, it was just that. It was added. It wasn't in the original writings because these breathing marks or these accents are added so that people know how to pronounce things better. Maybe we should do that for English for me. That might help a little bit, right? So that's what, it was something that was added hundreds of years after Moses wrote that. So that's one problem. It wasn't actually in the original text. The second problem with it is that it's all fan fiction. Meaning that, that nobody, there's no verse that speaks to a gap. There's no verse that speaks to all this happening in this time. This is someone sitting down going, well, let's, let's invent a story. And it's an interesting story. It would make a wonderful movie, I'm sure. But it's not rooted in the scriptures. It's not rooted in what we know to be true. So between those two things, that it's, it's based on a breathing mark, and based on fan fiction, I don't think this, this theory has much weight. The third theory we're going to look at this morning is what's called progressive creation or old earth creationism, or sometimes even referred to as day age, the day age theory. And, and the main idea of this theory is based on the Hebrew word for day. And the, the word is yong. And it can be translated as that, as a day, as a literal 24-hour period, right? So, for example, think about Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement, right? That's where they're, where they're breaking that word down, right? And, and so it has a variety of meanings, this word Yom, similar to, to English words, right? For example, the word bow. Am I talking about tying a bow on a present? Or am I talking about shooting a bow with an arrow? I won't demonstrate on the harp. Uh, w- w- where the, I won't do that, right? So which one is it, right? Or am I putting a bow on the bow? Or do I, if I, if I pronounce it differently, I might bow before the queen, right? So that, that one word has all kinds of different meanings. So it's common for a word to have different meanings depending on the context here. And so again, yom can mean day, or it can mean an indefinite period of time, an age, for example. And so that's how they're looking at it here, where Genesis 1 account is really describing a, a variety of yams, a variety of ages, a variety of indescript periods of time that overlap with one another, that when you add them all up, give you the millions and billions of years that, are, that science would require. And so the idea here is that God would actually create something in an instant And then he would just sort of step back and let it sort of grow and adapt and and get used to the environment. And then he would make something else, and then it would grow and adapt, and then maybe even die out, and he'd make something else and so forth. And so there's some appeals, again, to this theory. Number one is the day-age idea means, again, you can now be easier to line up with what science says about the apparent age of the universe, Right, because each age could be a million or a billion or two billion years, however you want, however long you need it to be. It would also help the line up with the geological record uh, that that science says exists in terms of like the the dinosaur fossils and so forth. Which again, even even tells us helps understand that you know here's when the dinosaurs existed, but then they died out, and then it was after the dinosaurs that God created Adam and Eve. So that's how this day-age theory works, And, and some of the things that the proponents of this theory would point to to validate their theory. But there are some problems with this theory. First, from a scientific perspective, our environment is so interconnected. I mean, it really is so interconnected that you can't only have one element of that environment without the others. For example, plants need insects. Insects need plants. You can't create just plants, have them exist for billions and billions of years, and then create the insects, and then create the animals. All of it is required. All of it is interacting. And so the idea that you could have these billions of years without one of these key elements to it you know, being held up, it, it's not going to work. And so there's, there's, it struggles now. This theory struggles in the same way that regular evolution would struggle. But here's the other problem. The fossil record that the geologists would point to doesn't actually support the Genesis account. So again, the day-age people would say, yes, Genesis 1 is true, and it's literal, and it's accurate, but each of them being an age, an indefinite period of time. But the order still lines up. But the fossil record would say something else. But to me, the biggest problem is actually rooted in the fact that this theory would say that death was taking place before the fall. Right? The idea that somehow that God would make some animals and they would live and die and, and, or live and give birth and then die. And those animals would grow up and give birth and die and, and, and they would, the population would grow. But over time, there's a life cycle there. Now death has been created as part of creation. And that's not what the scripture say. Romans 5 and verse 12 says that it was just through the one man, through Adam, that sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. It wasn't until the garden, it wasn't until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that death existed. Death is the product of the fall. And so the idea that there was death you know, for billions of years before Adam even existed would violate now what scripture is teaching us and saying to us. And so there's, there's a big problem for me then in this kind of a theory. So that leaves us then with the last theory that we're going to examine this morning. And it's called the, the literal six day or the young earth theory. And, and basically, this says that the earth was created in a literal six day period, six 24 hour periods as described in Genesis chapter 1, which would put the age of the earth today somewhere in that six to 10,000 uh, year range. Give or take a couple months, right? So there are some problems with this theory, though up front that people have with it. Number one is ten thousand years is a little smaller than thirteen point eight billion years, right? That's not like a rounding error, right? That's not like you forgot to carry the four in the equation, right? That's a significant deviation there. So how do we how do we make up that difference? How do we understand that? Well. I think it's helpful then to understand how did science come up with the answer or the age of the universe at 13.8 billion years. And without getting too technical, because I don't, I see Sue's eyes starting to glaze over a little bit here. <laughs> this is above grade three, I think, right? But, but without getting too technical, what scientists have been done, it's really clever, it's really brilliant, is, is they are looking at the galaxies and they can measure the speed at which the galaxies are moving away from each other. And, and knowing the speed, they are able to then kind of work back to kind of figure out, if they're here and they're moving at this speed, that means that I can work back in time when they all met a certain point. And that's what they are able to do. And so that was all based on the work and the, the scientific study of a man named Edwin Hubble, who as a reward, a constant was named after him, the, the Hubble constant. And they're using that, that, uh, that number there to give you an idea. But there's a problem, though. Remember we said two weeks ago that the scientists have discovered that about 400 million years ago, they figured that the universe began to accelerate, began to speed up. And so if that's the case, then the speed at which things are moving, the speed at which the galaxies are moving, isn't always constant. So Hubble's constant isn't so constant, is what they're saying. It's constant throughout the universe at any given point in time, but it's varying over time. And so. What they've done then is they've kind of tried to figure out how does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, NASA has put together a very helpful picture for us that we're going to put up here. It's kind of a uh, bell-shaped universe. And what they're trying to explain to you and I is that the universe, for the most part, is fairly flat. It's, for the most part, in a plane. But this, this shape here is kind of showing you over time how the universe is growing. So it's, it's kind of that big bang, bright light kind of hides the fact that it started off as a point. But if you think about what they're saying here is that the universe started at nothing, had an immediate explosion over the first couple hundred million, a couple hundred million years, where just a massive expansion. And then it slowed. And then it started moving at a constant speed. And then about 400 million years later, it began to speed up. Now, you might be wondering, you know, what would cause that sudden, you know, that sudden expansion to suddenly just stop, almost, and just really slow down at about 400 million years? And then what would start things to accelerate a few hundred million years ago? And so I'm glad Barry's here to tell us. Barry, you witnessed all that. <laughs> He's not a police officer anymore, so I get away with it a little bit. But he's still stronger than me, so I, I got to find that sweet spot there. We don't know. I mean, that's, that's what's really interesting to me. As, a, as an engineer, I look at that and I think, why would it just suddenly stop accelerating, stop moving away, just aim, so much slower? It'd be like all of a sudden it hit. You know, a body of water. Think about it like when you're running into the water. You're running really fast. And, and especially when you're young, you're really running fast, right? And then you hit the water and just, you slow down. That's essentially what they, they say happened just a few hundred million years into it. And then again, why did it start accelerating? Well, here's the answer. Here's how they got to that shape is they created mathematical models. They created mathematical models to approximate how the shape of the universe changed over time. Well, let me let you know a little dirty secret about mathematical models is you can make those suckers dance. I I spent years tuning and using mathematical models and there's so many little variables in there and you just tweak this one, you tweak that one and a little bit here, a little bit there, and you can get any shape, any, any, any results you want. But what happens is they say, well, we've created this mathematical model, and therefore, we're the most comfortable with it. Well, there's no way to actually test the accuracy of the model. And you see, that's the key. Whenever you create a mathematical model, you need to go and test it. The problem is, there's no way that we can accurately test their model. Because if this is actually true, if it is actually 13.8 billion years, we've only been able to measure this about 150 years. That's, that's not even a drop in the bucket in terms of trying to be able to, to discern any kind of significant change. And so I don't know if their answer at 13.8 billion years actually is the absolute finite answer. It's their guess. It's what they're theorizing. But I don't know if that's necessarily the right answer. Well, you might say, well, what about the geological record? I mean, the geological record and the fossil record would tell us that the you know millions of years on this planet. Well, one thing I find really interesting, and this doesn't prove anything either way, but I find this interesting. The oldest tree on Earth is 5,000 years old. I do find that interesting. There's nothing older than that. Now, that, again, that doesn't prove that it's a young earth. It doesn't prove that it's not a young earth. I'm just saying that to me is a really interesting aspect of things that, that we don't have anything older than just a few thousand years old. But let's, let's maybe approach it this way, right? If, if the world is really only is thousands of years old, not millions of years, that would mean that man walked the earth with dinosaurs. Well, that's crazy. That's not possible. Well, think about it. It wasn't until the mid-1800s that they discovered the very first dinosaur fossil, which means before then, they didn't know such a beast existed. They had no idea, no clue that anything like that is even possible. Right? So they discovered the fossil, and it took them actually a few decades before they actually realized what they had, and they, you know, they, I wasn't going to make, I was thought of a, I I didn't do it this time, Barry. So, but um, but they, they found the, the fossil and they, they eventually discovered, hey, you know, what this is a whole new species. And that began the whole discovery of dinosaurs and so forth. But let's consider the oldest culture that exists today, the Chinese culture. They have their lunar calendar and in their lunar calendar, they've got all kinds of different animals for each month, right? They got the rat and they got the ox and they got, I think, the dog and, and the snake and the boar and all kinds of different animals, all animals that we know are real. And then they have the dragon. And you know who the dragon, thousands of years they've been believing this thing, the dragon. You know who the dragon rep, he looks a whole lot like? Looks a whole lot like a dinosaur, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting? Well, uh, am I saying that, that people in China, they walked with dinosaurs and dinosaurs existed in China? Well, let's study some more. Marco Polo. I'm sorry, Marco. I, I know, I know. But Marco Polo, he he, he was the famous uh, explorer. Uh, I think I believe he was from Spain. And he went on the Silk Road to, to Asia and through China, and he discovered all kinds of of uh, unique plants and flowers and animals that were in that region that they didn't have in Europe. And so, he, it was, what made him so great is he had detailed notes about what he saw. In fact, so, they were so good, they were so accurate that even today, historians look at that and they say, it's amazing the kind of scientist that Marco Polo was. Well, one day he records this in his journal. He writes, leaving the city of Yachi and traveling 10 days in a westerly direction, he reached the province of Karazan, which is also the name of the chief city. Here are seen huge serpents. 10 paces in length, that's about 30 feet, and 10 spans, about eight feet, girt, girt of the body. That's how big their body was. At the forepart, near the head, they have two short legs, having three claws like those of a tiger, with eyes larger than a, a four penny loaf, and very glaring. The jaws are wide enough to swallow a man. The teeth are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is so formidable, neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Others are met with a smaller size being eight, six, or five paces long, and the following method is used for taking them. In the daytime, by reason of great heat, they lurk in caverns. From whence at at night, they issue to seek their food, and whatever beast they meet with, they can lay hold of, whether tiger, wolf, or any other they devour after which they drag themselves towards some lake, some spring water or river in order to drink. By their motion in this way along the shore and their vast weight, they make a deep impression as if a heavy beam had been drawn along the sands. Those whose employment is to hunt them, they observe the tracks by which they are most frequently accustomed to go and fix into the ground several pieces of wood armed with sharp iron spikes, which they cover over with sand in, in such a manner not to be perceptible. So they, they basically dig a pit, they put these, these wooden spikes with metal, metal tips in there, and then they just sort of put branches over top of it and make it look like it's just regular sand. When therefore the animals make their way towards the places they usually haunt, they are wounded by these instruments and speedily killed. So they fall into the pit and they impale themselves on all these spikes. The crows, as soon as they perceive them to be dead, set up to scream, and this serves as a signal to the hunters who advance the spot and proceed to separate the skin from the flesh, taking care immediately to secure the gall, which is most highly esteemed in medicine. So they field dress it, basically. In cases of the bite of a mad dog, a pennyweight of it, this is their gallbladder, dissolved in wine, is administered. It's also useful in accelerating parturition. When the labor pains of women have come on, a small quantity of it being applied to a bunch of things that don't sound good. Um, And then they talk about the flesh of the also animal is sold at a dear rate, being thought to have a higher flavor than other kinds of meat. And by all persons, it's esteemed a a delicacy. What does that sound like? Massive animal, short short front legs, massive mouth, sharp teeth. Sure sounds like a dinosaur or a dragon, some might say. What's interesting is scientists, they see this, and they they go, you know, that Marco Polo guy, he was so good. He was so accurate in all his descriptions. But this one, he dropped the ball on. Because clearly, he's describing an alligator. (laughs) Really? Well, there's other historical figures. They've described encounters with animals that could only be dinosaurs. They includes the 5th BC uh, Greek historian, G- historian uh, Herodotus, Alexander the Great, even, even the famous philosopher Aristotle talked about encountering animals that had to be dinosaurs. And so that would tell us that, that God created dinosaurs as part of the original creation, and they walked at the same time that man walked this earth. But they were likely hunted out of existence. Because of how they were treated, sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Can we, can we actually trust these eyewitness reports? It was interesting when I was, when I was doing my study, and I was you know looking up and trying to study evolution or the Big Bang theories and so forth, and one scientist was giving a talk, and he was talking about how the, the universe is expanding and accelerating, meaning that each galaxy is moving further away, faster and faster he says at some point, far enough down the road, those galaxies will move away faster than the speed of light. And if, when that happens, you won't see them anymore. Because the light coming towards us will be slower than the speed that the universe is going away, which means that they will go dark to us. They're still there, but to us they'll go dark. And at some point, all of this will expand, all this will separate, that our galaxy will appear to be all alone. And he says, in that time, they, these scientists at that point will have the high, highest technical, highly complicated, uh, cutting edge technology, and they will look out into the universe, but all they'll see is blackness. And they will conclude that we're alone. He says, but then they'll have other reports, reports like from today, that would talk about stars and other galaxies and, and so forth. And he says, the question is this, will they trust their cutting edge technology Or will they trust reports from thousands and thousands of years ago? He says, I think they'll trust their technology. What an admission. What an incredible admission from the scientists saying that they trust their technology more than they would trust the eyewitness accounts of people thousands of years ago. And I think that's what we're doing today. And we, we discount these, these men who had these eyewitnesses of this. The, the fact that the, the dragon even existed within age and culture. I mean, no one can just dream that stuff up. And yet that's what they're wanting us to hold to, wanting us to believe. So to me, man walked the earth.